1: Learn more at aarp.org skills. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Holla talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well...
0: Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and
1: seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work.
0: Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today, we're answering your listener questions. <laughs>
1: Buddy, this is an Ask How to Money episode. We've got multiple questions to get to during this episode. In particular, there's one listener, and he's wondering if it's possible to be too rich to participate in Buy Nothing groups. Oh, Yeah, it's almost like they ban a, you? I don't know. Then another listener is wondering, what are the aggressive funds uh, that he can invest in in order to juice his returns? And then another listener is asking, what's the point? Of an HSA, we're gonna get maybe a little more philosophical with it. Uh, with it, <laughs> what's the point? Existential <laughs> with our retirement
0: accounts. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna think
0: long and hard about that one, but we'll get to that plus more during this episode. Reminds me of that Zoolander scene. God, yeah, so good. Uh, all right, m- before we get to those Lister questions, Matt, I wanted to mention one thing. Heard from a, an old college buddy the other day. He texted me, and actually, this this buddy and I, his name's Travis. He and I went on a three month road trip around the country. This was, I guess I was 21 years old, and we had the greatest time. It cost very little, actually. It, I'm so glad I did it. I saw most of the United States, and the method of transportation was a 1995 Honda Accord Station wagon that we, we wagon. purchased together, right? Yeah. So, I wait, think,
1: question. Did you, you got the wagon
0: because you slept in it, right? Did you we slept, slept in the wagon in some? some? Okay. We, we had tents too. So we slept, but we didn't really sleep in the car much, maybe a couple times. Okay. We slept with uh, strangers' houses, seriously met random people and stayed like very much couch surfing. That's how Travis met his wife. <laughs> that's, that's how Travis <laughs> met his wife. Literally on the site couchsurfing.com, staying at that's her place. My, that's my favorite part of the They're still story. married to this day. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, so, yeah, we we had the best time on our trip. I still remember it with fondness just the people we met the stuff we got to see but the 95 Accord station wagon that we bought that took us around the country it turns out like Travis drove it for a few more years after like I ended up moving back to Atlanta uh for a number of years really he kept it in good good shape and then he was like all right it's time for me to part with this thing Mm -hmm. and so he ended up selling it and he heard from the person that he sold it to the other day why because that guy said hey this car's now got three hundred thousand miles on oh, the no odometer. Way.
1: So <laughs> he reached back out the Travis to be like, "Yes,
0: don't, don't you want to see his
1: birthday picture?" Right.
0: <laughs> yes. So that car, I swear, we we paid twenty four hundred bucks for it, oh my or, gosh. or maybe it was like thirty five hundred. It was definitely no more than thirty five hundred. It was like right in that in that in that range. Uh-huh. That's how much we paid for it when we bought it uh, very used (laughs) originally. And to think that it's still going all these years later, it just goes to show that people underestimate how long their their car can survive, how long it can perform. Yeah, well,
1: especially a a more dependable vehicle like that, which makes me think. Okay, let's let's play a quick round version of Better Know a podcast host. Joel, what was your least... Reliable, Like, if, of all the vehicles you owned, what do you think is the least reliable vehicle? And then which one, uh, looking back, has been the most reliable? So I think my,
0: the most reliable was probably my 89 Toyota Camry. First car I ever bought. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. Dude, Toyotas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I think my least reliable was, I. there was a Nissan that I had at one point. And I've actually had really good Nissans, mm-hmm. too. So not hating on the brand, but I had a Nissan that was just just like, didn't, didn't work out for didn't you? did work out. I would say if I still was driving, so I learned
1: how to drive on a '98 Honda uh, Honda Civic hatchback, and. It was purple. (laughs) It was like blue, bordering on, uh, borderlining on purple, and that thing was not pretty. It was base of the base model. There was nothing electronic on it. I don't think it had a radio. The windows, literally, they were manual windows. Didn't have power locks. The way they made them back then. I think whoever is driving that thing right now, nothing has broken on it because there is nothing to break. I've got to think that that was the most dependable vehicle. And simultaneously, I would say that my least dependable vehicle was a few years later in college when I was driving an old. Rundown, ninety-two uh, Range Rover. Yep, that was gonna be my guess for you. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. thing was You've not had, dependable, yeah. but man, was it so fun! And man, was it beautiful. Yeah, I still
0: like the way that those those early nineties classic r- Range Rovers look. Yeah, uh, they're sweet. It's fun to think about that car still being on the road still serving somebody well exactly that car i mean it it served (laughs) us well we had a blast and made a lot of good memories but the fact that it is still holding up all these years later i mean that's literally 18 years um ago that we were in possession of it or that i at least i was driving it so i know travis like i said had it for a bunch of years after that but i can't imagine as 21
1: year olds that y'all are treating it the best I
0: don't think we ever stopped for an oil change though <laughs> while we were going across the country so oh, I love it yeah Matt let's mention the beer we're having on this episode this one's called Sundog by Monday Night Brewing our mutual buddy Ryan came over and dropped this beer off mm-hmm. on our doorstep big thanks Ryan we'll, we'll uh, give, share our thoughts at the end of the episode I wish I wish it was called Sundog Millionaire uh, wouldn't that be fun <laughs> that would have been a good name yeah anyway it's a great old school movie alright uh, let's get to our first question for this episode and if you have a money question we'd love to hear from you just go to howtomoney.com slash ask simple instructions to record a voice memo send it our way so we can hopefully take it on the next ask episode but this one is all about why would we even start investing in an HSA to begin with hey Joel and Matt my name's Chris and I am from Pennsylvania My wife and I are in our late
2: 30s, and we have two young children, ages 7 and 4. In 2024, we're going to be switching to a high-deductible health care plan that will allow us to open a health savings account. I know I've heard you and others speak on using the HSA as a triple tax-advantaged investment vehicle, but I'm wondering, and I can't seem to find, what exactly is the end goal with this? Are we hoping to pay out-of-pocket as much as we can now to grow those funds? so that someday we maybe retire a little early and can use it to pay for COBRA? Or, do we use those funds to pay for Medicare in retirement? Do we have those funds sit as an insurance policy if we need a more expensive procedure later in life? Or is there some other long-term goal I'm missing that we would eventually use these funds for? In researching, I found a lot about the benefits of saving in an HSA but really nothing about how to use those savings later on in life. So any guidance you could give us now, I think will just help us figure out our direction in the present moment. Also, I do want to say a quick thank you. Um, You inspire people in many different ways. And as I mentioned in my email, uh, I've started a new career path, uh, at least in part, I think because of what you all do with your show and how well you do it. Uh, And the new career has been great. It's been rewarding uh, and, and engaging. And I can't thank you enough for all the things uh, that you put out there for so many of us to learn from.
1: Oh, Chris, thank you so much for those, those kind words. It's honestly really cool to hear that you are changing your life in more ways than just the financial, yeah. but specifically with your career. Uh, Matt, name sounds like a, a Tony Robbins of sorts. So <laughs> hitting you on every level. I was going to say, it sounds like he's been bitten by the personal finance bug and he's got that desire to help others with their money. Yeah. Uh, so in his email, Chris mentioned that he is now teaching business and personal finance, which is amazing. We need more people like you, Chris, because a single show with two best buds it's not going to be able to Cut it. <laughs> we need thousands of folks out there who know what they're talking about when it comes to money and personal finances and, and to know how to communicate crucial money topics effectively and how to teach others. Well, And uh, just to help the people that that are there around them within
0: their own circle, within their orbit. I think sometimes people assume, oh, Matt and Joel got that covered. Like, they're going to do the personal finance thing. Or maybe one of your other favorite personal finance writers or podcast hosts. And we love what we're doing. Like, we don't plan to stop. But this is one of those things where the closer you are to the person who's doing the learning, the more effective, I think, the learning can be. And so it's not that... There is no effectiveness to long-form podcasting. There's a lot of effect that we're able to generate, Matt. But in those personal one-on-one conversations, that's sometimes where the light bulb moments really happen and where the ability to really bring someone along with you for the ride or... To really help encourage them and, and push them in, in the direction they need to go or want to go. That's, I think, uh, a really powerful thing that mm-hmm. a bunch of individuals underestimate. Like, as you're learning, why not pass that knowledge on to others? So totally. Chris is doing just yep. that. It's great. Uh, and, and I love that you're going with the high-deductible health care plan, Chris. That's great. It does allow you to open up an HSA, which is an account we have sung the praises of for a long time here on the show. And we know you know this, uh, but don't let the excitement of being able to contribute to an HSA wag the dog on this one wag the tail right high deductible health care plans can be the right choice for a lot of folks, but run the numbers and make sure that you've got the cash on hand to self insure in case of additional unplanned medical bills because you go with a high deductible health care plan because you're excited about the HSA. And then it turns out, oh, oh, wait a second. I don't have much cash in the bank and I now have a a medical bill that I wasn't planning on. That's a bad situation to be in. And so we won't go into a full on explanation of the HSA right now either, but we will try to get to the heart of your question. We'll link to an article in the show notes, by the way, if you're listening and you're kind of maybe completely lost on this one, you're like, what is the HSA? It's a semi-complex account that most people think of as useful for spending on current Medical procedures in order to get a small tax break, but we think that there are, is a revolutionary use where you can invest inside of that account. most people don 't take that approach, but if you do, it can uh, help you generate a significant amount of wealth for your future
1: yeah yeah so chris he 's asking basically like what is the end goal of an hSA and he is definitely on the right path the The goal is to pay for those current healthcare expenses out of pocket, and then to invest the money that you're sticking within the HSA so that it can grow meaningfully over the years and avoid taxation at every single turn. Uh, Most of our favorite accounts, they come with a tax break either up front, offering you a deduction in the current year, or a tax break when you tap those funds. For instance, a Roth, right? You pay those taxes on the front end. You do not ever have to pay taxes on those contributions ever again. Well, the HSA allows you to avoid taxation on what you stick in, on the growth, and then every single dollar that you take out of it, if you use it for qualified medical expenses. That's a
0: triple tax advantage. Yeah. You know, huh? It does take some record keeping in order to do this thing correctly. Yeah, Matt. And so you know, record keeping is certainly a part of what makes the HSA work. But, but maybe let's, to the heart of what Chris is going after what am I actually saving for? And do, do I really need to save up big sums of money inside of an HSA? Does that make sense? Well, I would say this, if you want to retire early, the that, that's one plus in the HSA corner, right? Because that can act as a way to pull out penalty free retirement dollars earlier than other accounts will allow for, right? And that's largely because of the flexibility of when you can pull funds out from your HSA, you can do it Two years after the date uh, that you incurred the medical bill, or you could do it 20 years later. It doesn't matter. It's up to you. So, um, is there a chance? I guess one of the things Chris seems to be asking is there a chance that you might oversave in an HSA? And I would say the answer is unlikely because uh, Fidelity found that someone who's 65 right now will spend $157,000 on healthcare expenses. Over the course of their retirement, and that's in 2024, or I guess this was 2023 $20, dollars, Matt. So think about what that's going to be like for you and I in the future, and our listeners when in the future. 20 25 years, yeah, yeah. And that's our single individual. For couples, just double that number. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about uh, 300k plus in healthcare expenses in retirement for. All of us millennials, Gen Z, it's going to surpass that in all likelihood. And so I guess it's possible to oversave in an HSA, but we're just not worried about folks overcommitting committing to their HSA on that front. And, and then after the age of 65, by the way, if you don't have enough medical expenses to allow you to tap the HSA funds you need, it kind of actually turns into a traditional IRA where you have to pay tax on withdrawals. But that's at least a nice safety valve to have in place to say, oh, wait a second, I'm the healthiest dude that's ever lived and I haven't really incurred very many healthcare expenses. And so at least this mountain of money I've built up isn't subject to like even more severe taxation. It's like a penalty. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. just kind of turns into that traditional IRA and it, it makes it still a pretty swell account to have.
1: And I think a part of what's at maybe the core of what Chris is asking is the fact that like the examples he gave as to what he would spend his HSA dollars on, all the examples that he gave were all medical related. And so So I think the way he's still thinking about it in the traditional sense of like, oh, this is a health savings account. And some of this we've talked about how it's perhaps improperly named because it makes people think that, oh, you can only use these funds on health expenses that you might incur. But that's why it's so important to hang on to your receipts, because by you're able to reimburse yourself for those expenses as long as you have those receipts. But that doesn't mean that you are withdrawing that money for something in the future that is health related. You can withdraw that money for anything that you want to spend that money on. You just have to have the receipt from the past to basically prove and to offset the amount that you take out in the future. Yeah, You can use it to
0: buy a four-wheeler. Yeah. (laughs) As long as you to a restaurant to uh, go to the beach. Right. Clothing. But as long as you (laughs) had a shoulder surgery, let's say, that was roughly the price of that four-wheeler uh, th- that's it doesn't- or, or exactly the price. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's I mean, that's kind of what you're
1: getting. at. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a huge bookkeeping aspect that's where we that we were alluding to earlier. But you hang on to those receipts. You let those build up over time, and as you incur healthcare expenses. You, yes, you pay those bills out of your savings. You pay those bills out of your checking accounts. Uh, but then document the receipt as a 2024 medical expense. Like literally take a picture of it. Have a folder on your computer where you have these receipts set aside or within an, an Excel sheet. But then you can pull money out of that HSA for that expense way off into the future, right? Like 20, do it in 10 years, 20 years, even later. Uh, but it allows for meaningful growth while also giving you flexibility over when you pull those funds out. And so, don't think that just because the dollars that go into an HSA... Yes, they do have to quote-unquote qualify and be for medical expenses, but it's up to you as to when it is that
0: you choose to reimburse yourself for those expenses, and that's why hanging on to those receipts are, are, are so crucial. Yeah. And again, we know that these HSAs they can be a little bit complicated. We've tried to spell it out in detail in written form on howtomoney.com. We'll we'll put a link to that article up in the show notes for this episode. But we still think of HSAs if a high deductible health care plan makes sense. For you or for your family, it, it it's a it's a wonderful tool. Oh yeah! There. If you have additional money on top of, let's say your four hundred one k to get the match, Roth IRA, boom, you got some money in your HSA too. It's a trifecta to be able to utilize all three of those accounts to to invest for your future. It just takes a little bit more legwork, which yeah. is
1: why like a Roth IRA is easy. You just stick the money in the Roth. But an HSA, it is a slightly more. It's not like a beginner level, but it's not a pro level yeah. kind of account either. It's, it's like, like moderate. It's right there in the middle. It's like an intermediate level uh, strategy, which also makes me think too, I mentioned paying for those medical expenses in the here and now, like out of your checking or savings account. But again, if you're kind of at the level where you're considering an HSA for retirement, you should also be paying for your medical expenses using a credit card. And the the reason I bring that up, obviously you incur those expenses and then you pay that balance off at the end of the month. But it's like, I almost see it as a similar way where you're funneling these dollars through these optimized paths in order to gain the most benefit. That's right. Uh, And so maybe think of it that way. Just like instead of making a purchase directly out of your checking or your savings account, oh, you're going to put that on plastic and then you pay that plastic off. You're kind of like the credit card (laughs) in this scenario. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to have to myself realize the expense of that medical procedure. But then later down the road, I'm going to reimburse myself uh, in that way. I don't know. Maybe that could be helpful as a, as a way to think
0: about it. If that is already how you approach using your credit cards. Yeah. No, I think that's helpful. And it's again, it's it, it is a more moderate kind of uh, level personal finance task. But I do also think that the benefits are are supreme. Oh, yeah. Because I, I mean, like who doesn't want to not pay tax at all on dollars that come into their Mm -hmm. lives the hsa is the only way we know to make that a a reality so uh, best of luck chris hope that's helpful and uh, matt we've got more questions to get to on this episode including one about picking funds are there ones that are actually going to juice returns even more we'll talk about that and some other personal finance stuff right after this
1: All right, we are back. And we're going to touch on small cap value funds a little bit later on here. But first, man, let's hear from a listener who is interested in leasing a car.
3: Hello, the How to Money cast. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm 20 years old. I have three kids um, and a no wife. Um, I had a couple of questions on uh, leasing a vehicle
1: and whether you think it's it would be a good idea or not. I drive about 100 miles um, every day for work and uh, i also do doordash and like grow pub on the side to make extra money
3: um, do you think that would be a, an affordable option to lease a vehicle or do you think because you know they, they have stipulations and everything that it would be a bad idea um, i really enjoy the podcast and hope you guys have a great holiday weekend. thank you
0: bye well tom getting started making that family Early, dude. That's, that's nice. A lot of kids. Three, three kids <laughs> at A young age. It's a lot of mouths to feed. Yes. A yeah. lot of responsibility for yeah, sure. It sounds like you are taking that responsibility on your shoulders. You're working hard. And so we'll offer the best advice that we can, man. I mean, first things first. Is there any chance you can cut down on your commute? Because 100 miles a day is a massive one. Not only does it keep you away from your family, but that's... That's time, right? That's time mm-hmm. away from your home, and it's money that it costs to make that commute every single day. So uh, I'm not sure if that includes your side gig work as well. So if you're factoring that in and maybe your actual commute to your regular job isn't quite as far as it seems, but I will say that's a, that's a lengthy commute, uh, and it's hard for most people to keep that up over a long period of time. And by the way, don't forget that a lot of people think, oh, that's just gas. It's just extra gas money, Matt, because of the commute I have to make. No, 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 it's not. It's extra maintenance that you're going to have to perform on the car Mm -hmm. over time. It's depreciation. Uh, Your car is going to depreciate faster the more miles you put on it, the more you beat it up, just by using it more frequently. And so this is obviously a big decision move with uh, a, a lot potentially at stake. It's hard to pull off overnight. But I'm just putting that on your radar, because, uh, at least over the long term, because either finding a job closer to where you live or finding a place to live closer to your job could yeah. make a lot of sense, right, and kind of reduce costs and stress for you on multiple fronts.
1: Yeah, I I think something else worth discussing before we get to the heart of his question uh, are just side gigs in general, because they can be a good way to increase your income, but they also aren't going to be the best long-term solution for most folks either, where you are trading your time for money on an ongoing basis. And also without the killer income to show for it. And so we'd recommend to, to listen back to episode 419. That's actually when we did a deep dive on the trade-offs of side gig work and how to maybe instead think of them differently. Maybe how you could turn that into more of an entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah, I believe we called it the insidious nature of gig work because Be, yeah. it, it might seem more lucrative than it right. actually is, right? <laughs> yeah. That, but that being said, it might make sense for you for the time being. I think, for instance, if you've got some debt that you're trying to eliminate, but uh, but I think having a goal in mind and a, a desired endpoint as to when you're going to stop that side uh, gig work is going to be really important for you. Uh, again, you've got a lot of mouths to feed at a young age, but ultimately we want you to be focusing on your income potential. And, you know, whether that's through a W-2, uh, maybe you want some clearly defined benefits a predictable income, or if that means starting your own thing, because now that you've done some work on the side you felt the freedom to be able to set your own schedule. And i I tell you what, it can be really addicting to have the control over your time and when it is that you work and the kind of work that you say yes to, if that appeals to you, then going, again, more in an entrepreneurial, uh, going down that
0: path is going to be much better for you. Yeah. That just usually takes time, right, to build mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And so, so oftentimes you're building the ship while you're also kind of doing your, your day job. And so it can even be e- even more work for in the, in the run up. Um, let's talk about leasing a car, Matt. Like that was the heart of Tom's question. Mm-hmm. Uh, does leasing a car make sense when you're driving as much as he is? No uh it doesn't. It, it, honestly, leasing a car doesn't make much financial sense for anyone in our opinion. This is something we try to steer people away from, yes, basically constantly. Uh because it's just it's never good from a dollars and cents perspective. It's only a good option if you're optimizing for lifestyle over dollars. And the truth is we all do that to a certain extent, right? We do that with craft beer, Matt, you and I, like we we optimize our we saying it doesn't make financial sense for me to be drinking a Sun Dog? Of course uh, not. Like if we were all like uh, purists on that front, we would all drink tap water all day every day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just the way it is. Like, but we're all optimizing in some way, form or fashion. The clothes we wear, right? We could all be b- buying the cheapest stuff from Goodwill, but we choose to wear brands or something that make us feel good or better-made clothing or something. That's there's no problem with that. Uh, leasing is just that. But on steroids. Yeah. And so... The <laughs> second so, like most expensive item that you can purchase other right. than your home. And especially when you're 20 years old with three mouths to feed, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's not in your best long-term or short-term interest. And so let's say you were 45 or 50, Tom, and you've been maxing retirement accounts for a while with a bunch of savings on hand, and you just love driving a new car every two to three years. Leasing might be an okay option. Again, not the best money decision, but given the life stage of someone in that, then maybe. We would say, listen, there are trade-offs, of course, but you've got the cash. It's okay to make that choice. But for you, you'd be allocating way too many dollars to transportation yeah. if you were to lease a vehicle. It would rob you of so much opportunity in the meantime of where like every single dollar is precious when you're 20. Uh, it, it's not that it's not precious when you're 40 or 50, but it's just that there are you have hopefully made enough smart moves that you have a little more opportunity for error um, and you just have a lot less when you're 20 and every dollar has to be funneled effectively in order to help you build your future yeah
1: i think i get where he's coming from because he requires his vehicle to get to his job which is really far away it's his side gigs are reliant on his vehicle so he might be thinking about it more from an investment standpoint it's like oh if i get if i lease this vehicle it's gonna allow me to continue to make additional dollars, but yeah. again,
0: it's... Or a, it's like a, hey, I'm not beating up my main ride, and I'm, I'm beating up somebody else's ride in order to get to and from where I'm trying to go. But the more you beat
1: it up, the more it's going to cost you, yeah. and so that's why we want you to be thinking about some of the other things, basically, that you can be doing with those dollars, like there's basically this massive opportunity cost in devoting too many dollars towards your ride, towards transportation, because we want you to keep that line item as low as possible so that you can focus on, let's say, self-development. Your ability to, maybe it's getting certified like some sort of certificate, some sort of Something that's going to allow you to get paid more at your main job, as opposed to finding uh, opportunities on the side. But then getting dollars in at a young age, invested in the market, is going to be huge. Investing those dollars within accounts, accounts like Roth IRAs, because like every dollar that you spend more like flippantly now is going to have a major impact. Like I think yeah. back to the sacrifices I made, that Kate and I made when we were, when we were younger. Like we could have been quote unquote, balling out and living like a lifestyle that was, that was maybe in line with what some of our peers were doing. But instead, we chose to know, be be a little more boring yeah. <laughs> and nerdy with it, and instead, socking those dollars
0: away into the stock market. Yeah. And that's not something that, that we regret at all. I mean, I distinctly remember a conversation... Uh, right bef- before I bought my $3,200 Nissan Altima back in the day, Matt, it, which was a great car for me for seven years. Was um, oh, that the good one or the bad one? That was a good one. Okay, that okay. was a good one. <laughs> and so I was talking to a, um, a coworker, a friend, and I was like, I'm thinking about buying a new car. I'm going to keep it a really long time, like at least 10 years, and it's going to be one of the cheaper ones. It's going to be a Toyota. And and so it wasn't a dumb, dumb move, but I was so young and he was like, dude, it's you could but you could also keep buying older cars like you've been doing mm-hmm. and you'll have even more money to funnel into the market, even more yeah. money to funnel into your retirement accounts. And I'm so glad he dissuaded me because like, I was like... I feel like I've earned it, man. I'm like 26 (laughs) now or something like that. And it's about time for me to drive something a little bit nicer. I'm not slumming it like I was back when I was 23. Right. And so (laughs) you kind of start to feel that at some point where you're like, I'm an adult now and I'm earning a real salary. Do I still have to be driving something that's older and, you know, when all my or driving something nicer. And no, you don't have to. But if you continue to make those hard decisions, it's going to result in outside success in other areas, in your money working harder for you because you're not throwing it after just uh, a nicer car to drive. Yeah, absolutely. So- yeah. It's
1: I think it can be tricky for a lot of people to make the connection between present day Tom and then future Tom, right? Like there's, it's almost like there's a disconnect and we have to somehow connect the dots between the things that we want now. That's a perpetual human difficulty. Yeah, yeah, versus versus the things that you know you're also going to want in the future because whereas now when you're younger, you have the ability to sacrifice a little bit more, work a little bit harder. But at some point, man, I'll tell you what, future Tom is probably going to want to work a little bit less. Yeah. And so your ability to sock away dollars now uh, to afford yourself a little bit of that reprieve, a little bit of maybe a slightly more relaxed schedule where where you're just not working quite as much. That's that's what... Like no one else is going to be thinking about future you. It, It comes down to you as an individual to do that. And those are the dots that we're trying to connect here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it comes down to this. Delayed gratification on the car front means better things in the future and more financial freedom. Yeah. And so... What is it that you want? I mean, do you want the nicer car now and the stress of having to make that lease payment or the new car payment every month? That's one choice. Um, But I do think making the harder choice in some ways to continue driving whatever you're driving is going to allow you to have more financial flexibility so you'll have easier choices down the road. And, Matt, one last reason that leasing makes no sense for Tom is how much he's driving every day. I think that's just another reason not to lease the car because I think he's probably going to vault over the mileage limits in the lease, which means he's going to owe even more at the end of the lease because of it. And so, yeah, I don't think he needs to necessarily drive a jalopy that's barely holding on, but I think a well-maintained 10 to 12-year-old car could be the sweet spot for him. Or maybe. Find one not, other find thought. about Honda or Toyota, yeah, <laughs> based <laughs> the, on our experience. The one exception to the rule on the new car front could be well, maybe just maybe a new electric vehicle. If depending on you know exactly how much you're driving, if I he's going to maintain those yeah, those miles over yeah a long period of time, I would run the numbers because let's say that Chevy Bolt that's twenty eight grand and guess what? There's a tax credit for seventy five hundred dollars attached to it. it. It that could basically twenty grand for a new car at that point in time. That might make sense for Tom given how much he's driving... And you're paying a tenth of the cost in order to fuel that thing That's and right. actually drive
1: it. That, yeah, that really could go go a long way. And, and even on... Like, we don't know what he does, but I wonder, too, if he could reach out to his employer. Is there a way for him to get, like, a company car or mm. something? Because I think on... It would. It's more difficult, I think, for you to get a raise or to get enough of a raise to have the cash on hand to be able to purchase a vehicle, as opposed to something that they know is an expense and something that they that they write off. Uh, so, th- like a company car, that might be easier. That might be more accessible True. than getting a, a sizable, incomparable pay raise. But again, that's not knowing what it is that he does or the company yeah. at all. But I'm just trying to think of other ways to get that cost covered rather than. One of the most expensive ways to go
0: about doing that which is amazing for real all right tom Hope that helps man best of luck to you and to your family
3: Uh, Matt, let's get to our next question. This one comes from basically all the way across the world Hey Joel and Matt, this is Quay coming all the way from Shenzhen, China I've been listening to the podcast since 2018 and it's helped my wife and I get our lives together so much Long story short due to immigration issues and finances My wife and I are currently in a long-distance relationship for a while Even though we are apart we are still speaking regularly about our future financial goals. She's going to school for a career change to become a dental hygienist, and she just got a job at a popular coffee shop that has a 5% 401k match that we want to take full advantage of. I wanted to get your thoughts concerning Fidelity funds and allocations to choose. I know that the S&P and total stock market funds are great, but I also know that there was a previous guest speaking about small cap options as well. I would like to get to know what your thoughts are for a young couple being aggressive in their wealth accumulation phase. Thanks in advance for the help, and I hope another check-in with the wives are coming soon. My wife loves those, and i like to hear about the progression of becoming a therapist since I'm working on getting there too. See you guys later so quay your wife might
1: love those but i don't know if our wives love, <laughs> love coming up for those they're always like
0: do, do we, we have, have to do we have to i think once we actually get down to it and it's we start recording it's fine end up, we end up all having a great time it's the fact that we do it while we're at the beach so it's
1: like vacation right. and for them to have to i think it's less of a big deal for us to turn our brains on and engage and kind of have this conversation but for them i think it it's it's just more foreign to them yeah. to sit down and record a podcast episode than it is for us yes yes
0: it is but it's always a good time. We'll still have them on though. And I know people do We make them. Enjoy that insight <laughs> uh they, they probably hear things that our wives say that uh that we don't uh, that wouldn't reveal necessarily. Talking just the two of us. So, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, and by the way, like Emily's just about to start the internship process, Matt. This yeah. Later in, this semester. Yeah. Later this semester. So that's kind of exciting. So it'll be a lot to share. She's I like, think. enjoy seeing me while you can. Because I know. Th-
1: That's what she keeps saying. She's gonna disappear. Right? It's
0: it's gonna be like a whole year. I think of her working her tail off, and us not seeing her as much. So that'll be that'll be interesting. And and I will say, th- this might be one of the most understaffed professions in the country. By the way, mental health. Therapists, Because average wait times, I just saw this recently in an NPR story, average wait times to see a mental health professional are three plus months, with a lot of those Yay. professionals being booked up for at least a year. So you might call in and say, hey... Dr. Donna or whatever, like, can I come see you? And you're thinking maybe next week, the week after. And she's like, how about 2025? That is... That's crazy. So it's a good it's a good um, position to be in. It's a good... Uh, I mean, I hate it for people who are who need, need the help, but from a career standpoint, it's good to know you're not going to be lacking for work. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And Quay, it sounds like you and your wife are making lemonade out of lemons. I can't imagine how hard it would be to be a part like that. I know Kate and I were long distance for a short period before... It was like shortly after we started dating. And even that was was crazy hard. I couldn't imagine after having established... (laughs) <laughs> your life and how they live together and you know you get used to those rhythms and how it is that you live life and then to be apart like that sounds difficult it's like but, taking the velcro apart man yeah you know? yeah but he said that uh, they're talking they're talking about money they're keeping those communication lines open i think that's important quite i would say use some of those skills that you're learning uh, when it comes to counseling in your own marriage right you know? <laughs> um emily's using them in ours so <laughs> yeah. okay let's talk about aggression because I love that you want to be aggressive with your investing, and a little extra stock exposure during those early investing decades can make a real difference in how big of a nest egg that you're going to be able to enjoy there in retirement. Honestly, that's our biggest gripe with the target date funds out there because they're like they're totally fine for folks who are nearing retirement as they're looking for those their portfolio allocations to shift. But we think that they're a bit conservative for folks, certainly who are in their wealth growing stage of their investing lives. Yeah, like, especially for folks in their twenties and even their thirties. Which as is well.
0: funny because it, it seems minimal. Want you to get after it. It seems minimal oftentimes in the target date fund. The amount of exposure to non-stock assets, like it's usually. right and so that's the way at least like vanguards and fidelities are set up it seems like, oh, that shouldn't be that big of a deal, just 10% of my portfolio. Uh, not being in the stock market, being more in bond type choices. Well, it does turn out that, and that was, that was my, I was in target date funds early on in my investing career, Matt, not like this massive mistake, but I wish I had been exposed to the whole stock market with all of my money all the time because I did miss out on some important returns in those early years. Um, and so it's not the worst choice, but it's also not the best. So what should you yeah. do? Well uh Quay, you mentioned our episode with Paul Merriman. Paul is sold on small cap value from a historical returns yes, perspective. He, he is <laughs> he had a lot of good information like it's not just like I'm bullish on this, but it's like here's why um, and here is the the are the historical data to help you. Realize why small cap value is so valuable as part of your uh, your exposure to the market. Um, instead of just going, instead of just a total stock market fund or an S&P 500 fund, he would rather you go some percentage small cap value because that could help you see outsized returns. I personally have added a little bit of small cap exposure to my retirement accounts based on Paul's messaging and based on what he said. I think there's a lot of wisdom there and And even that, by the way, is a gamble we're based on we're 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 hoping that historic data. Uh, will be true in the future years. Repeats, right? Yeah. Basically. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that this is not this yeah. is a long term trend. And that's what Paul's data shows is mm-hmm. it is a long term trend. We're hoping the same thing holds up for our investing lifetimes. Yeah. Right? That's like the
1: the core of what it is at Quay's asking. And so it sounds like like you are a little more optimistic or on board with the small cap value. Personally I haven't made any changes. I'm still one hundred percent in the S P p five hundred because again, it's not that the aggressive nature of small cap value It's not that that scares me off. It's that, like, essentially, I just have a hard time, unless I'm completely misunderstanding what it is that Paul's saying, but I'm having a hard time accepting his message, which is that, like, it's essentially timing the market, granted, with a very long time horizon, but so much of it has to do with the fact that we are due to see outsized returns
0: within small cap value relative to the performance of the S and P five hundred, people would say the same thing about international stocks right now, right? They international stocks are down, have been down in recent years, and so hey, at some point, international stocks are bound to have their come up. They'll probably surge, yeah, sure. And yeah. so when will that happen? How will that happen? Um, who knows, right? And so yeah. you have to pick the asset allocation that makes sense to you through thick and through thin, not Ooh, what do I think is going to pop tomorrow. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, is there something else you should be turning to? I would say REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts, as an asset class, they have outperformed the S&P 500 for many years. If you want to invest in real estate, that might be worth considering. V&Q is a fund from Vanguard. It's a good one. But I guess I just want to caution you from focusing too much on juicing returns via exposure to different asset classes. I think it can reduce simplicity and i think it can maybe put the focus it can shine the light on the the not the most important factors
1: yeah which is i think especially at a young age to get really aggressive with the amount of money that you're setting aside right again funneling money into those accounts with with some real fervor and it's not that a- asset allocation isn't important it definitely is but too many folks do spend too much time trying to perfect their different etf holdings and not enough time figuring out how they can get more money into those accounts in the first place and uh, you and your wife—it sounds like you're both already focused on your careers. You're focused on increasing your income. Uh, you mentioned that your wife is—she's got a match, five percent match over in that 401k. That is great. But while we hope that we gave you some solid, fun, specific advice, just know that every additional percentage that you can sock away, it's going to have an even larger impact than choosing to make small cap value. Let's say a certain percentage of your of your holdings or yeah. that. Let's, especially when you are just getting started investing the your contributions make up the bulk of the growth of your portfolio of your retirement savings. Let's say you've got 50,000 or yeah, $50,000 set aside and every year you're planning to stick 5 grand in there. Well, let's just say by doubling that and going from 5,000 to $10,000, well, guess what? All of a sudden, instead of a 10% increase, you're seeing a 20% increase yeah. of your overall uh net worth, and that is something that you 100% have control over as opposed to thinking, all right, maybe we'll see international blow up this year or or just moving forward. I see international being the place to be. This is something, again, that you have full control over, which is
0: something I love. I think of it like this. You want to get great with your investment rate? And it's okay to be good enough with your investment choices. Like, there's there's no need to be perfect. I think some people think, oh, I need the the right seven or eight ETFs, and in the right percentage amounts. and I need to be balancing it appropriately every single year. And that just to me feels like too much. Yeah. And for you're the majoring, average, you're majoring in the minors at that point. Yeah, for the average investor, for folks who have families and day jobs and real lives why like why do you want to do that most people don't want to do that they're not going to and so yeah get great with your investment rate be good enough with your investment choices and you will win the game even if you're not hitting perfection which is you know let's be honest We've all heard the story of Icarus. You you might fall prey to that, too, <laughs> in an attempt for perfection. Uh, it's also important to have a fully formed reason for why you're investing the way you are. Have a written investment plan, Quay. That's going to help you stay the course when the fund you pick is having a down year or two or three. That's helped Paul Merriman. We asked him that question, too. Well, small cap value not doing so or 10 or so 20 years for a yeah. long time and, but he holds this conviction still about what he owns and why and you need to do the same thing right so even when Mr. Markets uh, makes makes the investment decision you made seem silly like you need to have a reason behind why you're doing that and consistently doing the same thing if your reasons for investing in other funds are half baked if you're just like oh it's just about making money like you don't have a real conviction behind why you're sticking money inside of that fund or inside of that sector you're likely going to make some bad decisions. So make sure you write it down and you have a reason behind it because that's going to help you stay the course. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and going back to the, the amount of money that you're able to set aside, your savings rate, that's one of the things you have on your side right now too is that at a younger age, I think you you have more of an ability to take some more extreme measures in what it is that you say no to because I'm telling you, I, there are very few folks who I meet in their who are middle-aged, and they're thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, now is when I really want to cut back. Like, you are willing to do those things when you're younger, just like you and Travis on that road trip. You are willing to couch surf and sleep in not the best of scenarios, I'm sure. But you're probably, you're just much less willing to do that. That's the human nature to, I think, crave... Some of the nicer things as you get older, and by nicer things, my, my, I just mean like a basic hotel. Yeah. <laughs> a know? Joel
0: road trip in 2024 would look very different.
1: It would look very different than, and it w- would cost more money when you were in your 20s. So that's just something to keep in mind. Is that it's not
0: because I've gotten bougie either. Okay, no, <laughs> uh, it's it's just because yeah, I'm not willing to probably slum it to the extent I was back then.
1: Yeah, so quay, just keep that in mind. Just front loading the sacrifice, I think, can be an incredible way to think about how it is that you are uh, investing and socking money away for your future. Joel, we've got more to get to. We do. Uh, in fact, we will get to that question about buy nothing groups and w- what the unspoken rules are of how it is that you should participate in those groups. We'll get to that right after this. <laughs>
0: Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. All right, Matt, we're back. We've got another question to get to here. This one comes from a listener. He's
4: like, what if I'm self-conscious about my money-saving ways? Hey, Matt and Joel. This is Joe from Minnesota. I've been listening to you guys for a while and really appreciate what you guys put out there. Uh, I was wondering how you guys feel about people with larger incomes utilizing items from a buy nothing group. I feel that I'm getting an item from somebody else that wasn't going to use it and that it's adding value to my life, that it's a good use of resources. But I sometimes wonder if I'm ultimately taking an item from somebody that otherwise couldn't afford it. I, for reference, I'm a healthcare professional, and so is my spouse, and we both have fairly high incomes, or at least I will pretty soon once I'm finished with training, but I still hustle for all the little things and money. I to pick up extra shifts for moonlighting, I card hack, do some couponing, and sell items on Marketplace when I can, and uh, even saving a few dollars here and there is still important for me, even if it's just on principle alone. Thanks, guys.
1: Joe, living a principled life is what it's all about. I, I, I see nothing wrong with that. That that is guiding your convictions. And I, I I love your dedication to all things dollar related. Like <laughs> he's leaving <laughs> leaving no stone unturned, even though he's set to have a pretty pretty large income. He's got a little bit of partner. Warren Buffett in him, right? Like that, that that's why we Eden respect Eden, people Eden like that. McGriddle every morning. Yeah, <laughs>
0: we just respect people like that. We we, ought, we think it's like a tiny bit insane, but we also respect the heck out of it because we're like, oh no, that guy like values what he. Values Values, and just because he's got tons of money, he didn't change his values. Yeah, exactly. As, as opposed to Joel getting bougie with his road trips. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> don't be like Joel. No, I'm saying he's that like the Four Seasons time. <laughs> every time I go somewhere.
1: No, I think Buy Nothing groups are a great resource for folks of all income levels. Like I don't think that there's any shame in you participating in a Buy Nothing group, Joe. Uh, I'm totally fine with doctors who make well into six figures tapping Buy Nothing groups to keep their costs down. Uh, but the one caveat I would add is is to be an active participant. Uh, So don't just show up and snag the free stuff. (laughs) Be active and give things away in that group as well. Because if you're only ever grabbing stuff yourself, then you kind of have more of a one-sided relationship with the folks who are participating there and maybe you don't want to be that guy, right? Like maybe instead of selling some of those items on marketplace, give them away to the community instead. I think it'll make you feel better about it. And kind of, if, if I feel like it rounds out the participation. Yeah. It just feels like there's like give and take, right? It just feels
0: like a healthier symbiotic relationship yeah. as opposed to it being one-sided. You're helping the group thrive as, a ch- as yeah. opposed to just being like, I'll get what I want when I want it, right? Which is kind of, what we're trying to avoid here mm-hmm. is with the American consumeristic sort of mentality. Totally. And I think when you would talk to if you talk to anybody who's in a buy nothing group, Matt, somebody who's launched a buy nothing group, those groups tend to be more about waste reduction than about charity. So it's not about the person with the lowest income or the greatest need getting the item. It's all about just making sure that item stays out of a landfill. That item is reused, reloved, repurposed. That's what the buy nothing groups care about the most. And so Joe is in on that, like it's, it doesn't matter if you make $5 million a year, as long as you care about that same, that same ethos, then you fit right in with the buy nothing group people. Mm -hmm. And so I, I know for some members, it can feel like it serves a dual purpose, which is great. It can feel like, hey, my income's really low, this is how I get by. That's cool. And buy nothing groups can help you out in that way. But I think because of that reason that buy nothing groups exist, that should help your conscience feel clean, Joe. Yeah. And by the way, I would suggest going back and listening to episode 680 that Matt and I did about the diminishing returns of frugality. I'm not saying that you're overdoing it, but your frugal (laughs) instincts might just might be causing you to experience less joy and happiness than you otherwise could if you were to loosen the purse strings a bit. It's all about balance. And I know, I think super early on, Matt, I was overly frugal. I've talked about this on the show before. And I have dialed that back some. And I do find myself to be happier. Um, But you also can't take the frugal out of the dog kind of thing. Um, There's still a lot of that in me. And I want that to remain. I uh, enjoy that about myself. And it is kind of part of, who my makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just want Joe to think, cause I think some people because of necessity, they learn the skill of frugality or hyper frugality. And then they use it over a long period of time and it becomes ingrained and they forget to question whether or not hyper frugality still makes sense, given the place that they're in, whether it's necessary yeah. anymore. And yeah. again, yeah. if
1: you failed fail to question that if you've, if it's something you've always done, but we, what we want you to do is like kind of step outside of yourself yeah. and to look at yourself and say, is that necessary? Like almost like a, goes to Christmas past, present, (laughs) future sort of scenario where you're able to see yourself through a third person. Well, specifically, like, through your wife's eyes because with you being married, I think your spouse might likely be down with your frugal ways, but, like, they also might think that you're a bit too intense. (laughs) So I'm not trying to, like, stir up drama here, but it's probably important to have a discussion about ways that you can spend intentionally to increase your happiness together as a couple, as opposed to maybe finding more ways to cut back this month. <laughs> I know that like, like your default is frugality, but you can't take the mountain of money that you're able to save and invest each year with you when you die. So it's worth talking about maybe some more of those near term goals that you might be able to accomplish by allocating a bit more of your income uh, to spending. As long as and this is not normally
0: the direction we have to put people uh, in, yeah. but occasionally you do. And occasionally you have to say, listen, it can be overdone on this, on this side of the equation. You're both high, income earners have you paid off all your debt are you meeting your investing goals well then and and if you enjoy frugally if you enjoy the buy nothing group thing and you buy into that ethos then great more power to you but it's just at least worth having that discussion as a couple and saying well I think you know what maybe we would enjoy a nice meal out once once a month that we haven't been partaking in because It was just the hyper frugality thing that got bent so hard that it forced us from even thinking that was a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: Yeah, in this case, Joe, maybe we're reading into something that's not there at all and you don't have a problem at all with spending money. You just like, you like a bargain. You don't like things to go to waste. Uh, And so as long as, so from a principled standpoint, again, that's kind of seems like how you're approaching this. I have zero qualms at all uh, with you participating in these Buy Nothing groups. As long as you realize, here's the other part of it, is that it takes time to hit up a curb alert. It takes time to communicate with somebody and to set aside time to drive over to somebody's house, pick something up, as opposed to just ordering it online. So as long as you know that your time might be better spent, uh, or I'm sorry, it could be better spent in earning more dollars than the money that you're saving by participating in yeah. the buy nothing group that is does that makes does that make sense yeah that is
0: one tendency of hyper frugality is to completely devalue your time in search of saving money and, and that's you're what, like yeah. oh wait my, no my time is actually way it's more precious more. than that and i should value it a little bit more highly as
1: long as though like you said as long as you value it is what it what like what it is that you're doing yeah. so you mentioned like the frugality it makes me think of how it is i budget i zero sum budget and i manually enter my expenses in every single month is that the best use of my time? Well, if you're optimizing from the outside, someone would say, why do you do that? Just hop over to Copilot, automate that junk. Yeah. It's a great interface. But I really enjoy how it is that I have my mind completely wrapped around our family's finances in that way. I know, where I to automate that, it might save a couple hours every single month, But that's not what I want to do. I I have intentionally chosen to stick with my old school Excel budgets because that is how I want to budget our our money every single month. And so I am proactively and intentionally entering into that that transaction. I'm willing to make that trade-off because I... I like what it gives me. Uh, gonna do it with your eyes wide open. Exactly. And with a
0: reason behind why you're doing it. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. One other, I think maybe one other tip too. I don't spend a whole lot of time on Facebook, but the way I remember these groups working is that somebody will post something and then someone like claims it. Like they're like dibs first or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then everybody like dog piles on. And it's like Back back up, up, back up. Back up. <laughs> maybe as you're thinking of others, because that was another part of his question where he's just like, man, I feel like maybe I'm taking something from somebody who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it perhaps make a like make a 24-hour rule just like you would with buying something brand new. If you see something, maybe don't comment to put dibs on it for like a full day, for like a full 24 hours. That way somebody else has the opportunity to come across it and be like, oh, snap, like that's something I've really been wanting. I can't afford one of those. But then if nobody's claimed it in like a day or two, oh, yeah, swoop in, scoop it up. But you've given somebody else the opportunity to, to get in there and to potentially get something that they otherwise would not be able to afford. Yeah. I, th- I think that could be a just a simple, straightforward, practical way to make sure that you're not like snatching up all the good
0: stuff. Agreed. <laughs> all right, Matt, since we mentioned Facebook, I just wanted to quickly mention we have a How to Money Facebook group. Yeah, we do. And everybody out there listening should join it if you haven't already. It's one of the best places on the internet, and there aren't really that many great ones. Uh, let's be honest, especially interpersonal ones. So, if you're looking for like you know a, a peer group of people who care about their finances, you place to bounce questions or watch what other people's questions are. It's really a great place. So, please do join the How to Money Facebook group. But Matt, let's get back to the beer that we had on this episode. This one's called Sundog. It's a wild. Berliner with peaches, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, real good. Said.
1: A Berliner it's like a, a funkier, more zesty wheat ale. So Berliner Weiss, and uh, it's like a German wheat, essentially. But yeah, this one was made with... What does second-use peaches mean? I, I was curious about that, too.
0: <laughs> like, what did you use these peaches for first?
1: I don't know if I want to know, I, yeah. <laughs> actually. But no, this was a really great tart wheat beer with you know, a touch of that peach flavor profile going on. Um, I would say... I don't know how old this is, but it was a bit more tart and astringent mm-hmm. than I think it was when they first bottled it. And I wonder if it's continued to bottle condition or ferment a that little could bit, be. where some of the sugars were eaten up uh, by the alcohol. But yeah. it was, yeah, a, a bit more brash than I was expecting. Perhaps I was down
0: with that. I'm yeah, a, yeah, I liked it. See, I like I, things a touch, just a touch sweeter than you. I do. thought it was light though. I thought it was. Um, it was good though. It was fresh. Mm-hmm. It was tart. It was. It was a zinger, uh, and, and it brought the the peach vibe going on. In a big way. Um, So, yeah. Love what Monday Night does. This is another great beer from them.
1: Yeah, it's kind of got like nectarine, apricot, almost vibes going yeah. on, like stone fruit, uh, for sure. Hundred percent. Definitely enjoyed it. And Ryan, thank you so much for bringing this one our way. And listeners can find our show notes up on the website at howtomoney.com,
0: and that's where you can find some of the different resources that we mentioned during this episode. Yeah, and don't forget to sign up for the How to Money newsletter. By the way, we say that regularly, but it really is awesome. Comes out every Tuesday morning. It's free. Shows up in your inbox. We it's don't spam the you. Best. We promised. You can find that at howtomoney.com slash newsletter. Mm -hmm. All right, man. So until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out.